I got lost in worship. I didn't know it was my turn. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Man, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Father, I pray as we read your word this morning that you would um, fill our minds, fill our hearts, Lord. Father, give us tender hearts, tender minds, sensitive to your spirit. Father, sift us. Reveal yourself more fully to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. So we have, uh, Laura mentioned it, I'll say it again quickly, but this evening we are at, uh, we have leased a permanent location, like a five-year lease or something, um, over off of Burnt Mill. Uh, no, 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 excuse me. It's off of Randall Parkway, but it's in Burnt Mill um, Business Park. Thank you. Somebody around here, thank you, Carol, always keeping me straight. Um, so we're from 6.30 to 8.30, we'll be there just praying and dedicating over that space. And we'll also have some worship. Um, we will park the yellow truck out front. So everybody keeps saying, how are we going to know? There's no. We'll park the yellow truck out front. We'll stick a little salt box sandwich board sign out front. Come join us if you like. That's open to everyone. That'll be very much reminiscent of what we do from uh, at probably 8.45 to 9.30 here in this auditorium, if you've ever been there. So uh, just a special time of asking the Lord Jesus to do with what he does, which is make all things new, fill it with his presence, and uh, glorify himself, and lead us to life there at the new space. Amen? Okay, cool. All right, we're in um, John 3, um, and this is some of my, I love all, I just love passages as I get into them, and the Lord starts speaking to me, but, but the next um, couple of sections of John 3 and 4 um, are just incredible to me. And I have some fear and trepidation as we sort of unfold it and try to walk through it together. So um, b- before, uh, let, me, let me tell you where we're going. Um, so John 3, if you're in your Bible or if I'm, you're flipping on your phone or whatever, um, we're going to cross-reference later in the message, Numbers 21, if you want to make a little note or put your finger there. Um, we are also going to uh, conclude with a cross-reference in John 19. So we're going to, the main passage is out of John 3, but as always, we're going to use the word to interpret the word and understand what the Lord is saying to us in it and through it. So John 3, Numbers 21, and then we'll conclude with John 19. Um, today's, a li- in some ways, is probably a touch um, messy if you're a note-taker. You know, I don't come with three or four points today. It's more like a tapestry. Um, so when you weave a tapestry, you know what happens, right? It's, it's a little bit of a mess. And so we're, we're going to walk through and ask the Lord to help me get out of the way and let the Lord speak uh, to us in us, to us through John 3. Um, so let's set the table uh, with two things before we start reading. Um, if, you're, if you're in your Bible, take John 3. Um, we're going to talk about Nicodemus. That's the first half of that. The second part of John 3 is um, John the Baptist, and we actually already preached through that when we were in John 1. So if you want to go back and listen to that, that's pretty profound. Um, and then you go into John 4, which is um, uh, the woman at the well in Samaria, and so we'll do that next week. Um, but, but here's what I want to do, is I want you to step back from like a 30,000-foot flyover perspective, and what um, John the Apostle, as he's going through the book of John, is, is sort of revealing here, because I think it reveals something about the heart of God that's very, very important. But we, we deal first um, with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like the head of the church of the day. So 
the best of the best, the brightest, um, the, mo- the one who's most well-known. And so you get this um, idea of a man who, has su- who commands such respect from the people, who is loved by the people, um, the people are following, and yet he's lost in religion and self-effort. So, so you have a man who actually comes to Jesus under the cover of night. We'll read it in just a minute. But he's this um, probably well-meaning man that's gotten lost in bondage to religion and to performance and to cleaning up the outside of the cup in hopes that somehow he'll, he'll attain to salvation. And then the, the, it switches, and, and John, the apostle who's writing this, goes into John the Baptist, someone who gets that uh, he, Jesus, must become greater and John the Baptist must become less. So what, what John is beginning to do, John the apostle is beginning to do as this is written, is he's saying, okay, take a look at the gospel and look at it from someone who is stuck in religion. Look at it from someone, John the Baptist, who is walking sort of accurately, full of the Spirit, understanding that he must become less so that Jesus can become greater. And then thirdly, he shifts into John 4 and talks about this Samaritan woman. So, so what... Um, and we'll deal with that next week. So, so what you have to almost um, understand from a 30,000-foot flyover is that immediately John the Apostle is saying, this Jesus came to save the religious. This Jesus also came to save the broken. You'll see at the end of this message that Nicodemus is actually wealthy. Jesus so is, is also saying, this uh, Jesus, this faith is for the wealthy, and this faith is for the impoverished. You'll see that this faith is for uh, male and this faith is for female. You'll see that this faith is for those who are Jewish and think they're important, and this faith is for Samaritans, people of a different ethnic culture that the Jews actually hated. So what you get is this huge um, sort of melting pot at the very beginning of John, where John is already declaring, um, not even through words, but through the story, that this Jesus came to save the lost in all walks of life. This morning, we actually were praying in our, in our morning prayer time, and we were talking about Luke 15, and Luke 15 is the prodigal son, and you know, some of you have been the prodigal son or prodigal daughter. I have. Some of you may have been the older son or the older daughter, religious, critical, angry, disappointed in your younger brother or sister. Some of you may even have been uh, the prodigal father waiting for the kid or kids to come home. That's a, a, in, in a way what John is actually revealing here as he talks about Nicodemus and then John the Baptist and then the woman at the well. So that would be point number one that I would just want to set the table with, um, the, 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 the extent to which this gospel goes to reach everyone, absolutely everyone. Okay, the second thing um, that I want to set the table with is there's this funny pattern um, that John reveals as we look through um, Jesus talking to Nicodemus and then Jesus talking to this woman at the well. And here's how it basically goes. The person seeking says something um, to Jesus, okay? And then Jesus basically says back, this is really difficult to understand. And then the seeker misunderstands. And then Jesus answers and says, it's even more difficult to understand, and then a conversation unfolds where, where Jesus um, explains it. But, but what you get here, and it's, it's actually one of the like, core values, I would say, of even who we are as Saltbox, is the idea is not that you come to church and you're, all your questions are answered and you walk out with a neat little package called Christianity. 
No, 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 no. The idea is actually that we ask difficult questions. We wrestle with things. What if I doubt? What if I don't have faith? What if I have a crisis in my marriage or with a child? Or what if I have someone who's struggling with an abortion or a sexual identity issue? Or what if I'm going through a divorce? Or what, the what ifs go on and on and on, right? And the point is that as we come together as Christians, it's that we begin to seek the face of God and we actually are looking into the word almost as a mirror and letting God change us in and through the word. And so it, it is not that you come, we come together uh, to understand it all and to have a neat little Christian package. No, no, no. It's so that we can actually be in the messy Jesus journey together. So the invitation here, come on, Venus. <laughs> <laughs> the invitation is to get in the messy Jesus journey. And it is messy, and it is difficult, and it is challenging, and it is humbling, and we are a broken group of people walking together, but committed to prefer one another and encourage one another and love on one another and edify one another and step each, on each other's toes and ask each other's forgiveness. That's what church is. That's what it's about, and we're, gonna, we're modeling it to the best of our ability from the top to the bottom to the end to the out. That is what we're doing, and that's the invitation is that you would join with us in your own messy journey. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> now, right before we start reading, why does Jesus ask these questions and say that it's so difficult. And I would say that, that he, is, um, he is looking for a people that are hungry and willing to seek after him. He is looking for a people that are willing to forsake the, I've got all the questions answered, and go after him and take the risks to even know and be known by him. Uh, I laugh. i got a group of people that, of pastors that I meet with periodically, and, and a lot of times we'll laugh and say, there's nobody more dangerous than a second-year seminary student. You can fill in the gaps there, right? Okay, let's keep going. Um, all right, last thing I think to say before we embark on John 3 is, and I, I think that John the Apostle, as he pens this or is penning this, um, is saying to us, uh, is most of us come to God with prayers like, Lord, will you change my spouse? Lord, would you change my kids? Lord, would you change my roommate? Lord, would you change my boss? Lord, would you change my neighbor? Lord, would you, I mean, come on, fill it in. I mean, that's kind of where most of us live. And what this is driving us to in John 3 is, Lord, would you change me? Okay, let's read. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, so this is like um, if you took the 12 most famous pastors in America, this guy's one of them, okay? That way you could understand this. That's the level of respect that he commands. He's like, you know, published author and big Instagram account and, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but everybody knows Nicodemus. If you're a Jewish person, you know Nicodemus. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Ooh. He said, Rabbi, that's a respectful term, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with 
him. Okay, let's just pause here for just a minute. We know from the end of chapter 2 that Jesus is hanging out in Jerusalem. My guess is Jesus is staying in a house somewhere in the city of Jerusalem or right outside of the city, and Nicodemus finds out. Now, Jesus has been teaching. He's just changed water into wine, and then he's cleared the temple, and there's all hubbub is going on. This is Passover time, so there's hubbub in the city going on about who this person Jesus is, and you get Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. So let's say he comes to Jesus in a, in a, a whatever, a house there in Jerusalem, and the two of them, so they can talk privately, step out onto the upper uh, room or the upper deck. And so they're standing um, under the night sky, and you got the, the sort of arid um, Israeli air, even the wind sort of blowing through. Um, as they stand there talking, it would have been cool, and they're standing there, and they're having this, this discourse. Okay, so Get that sort of in your mind. You can feel that. Now, let me, let me then make a, a statement about what sort of the Pharisees um, have done, because I think this is it's probably important for you to understand. Um, so the f- in, and I, could, I was trying to think, how can I even fully help us get our heads around what, who these Pharisees are and what they've done? But, and this is probably the, the, a simple way. In the Old Testament, God commanded um, Moses many, many things. We've read through some of them in Exodus. But he commanded Moses to um, honor the Sabbath day, which is the day of rest, and to keep it holy. Okay, we remember. That's good. All right, so honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And he went on to essentially say no buddy should work and no animals should work. That's it. Okay? That's where... God left the command in the Old Testament. So what the scribes and the Pharisees did is for generations and generations, probably out of a right desire to please God, they started um, writing books and books on what work means. Okay, because well, we want to please God, so we can't work on the Sabbath, okay? And so uh, they, they spend, I mean, year after year, generation after generation, this thing grows. And so the definition of what is work is no longer left uh, before a person in God, but rather it becomes this massive rule book. And it's down to things like um, you can't tie this kind of knot on the Sabbath because that's work. I mean, really, t- total. Uh, and, and so they would define this type of knot, a fisherman's knot, well, that's, that's work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Um, but a woman's girdle, well, that's part of her getting dressed. So uh, that type of knot is legal to be tied on the Sabbath. Now, so go with me here just for a second, because this is all going to connect. When someone had to go draw water from a well, they took their bucket, and they tied the bucket onto the rope that was lowered into the well, right? So what they had defined as work, and you would have technically should have gotten your water before the Sabbath, but let's say you didn't, or you ran out, or your jar broke, or whatever it was, you needed water. So you had to walk over to the well, and it was illegal now to tie a certain knot on the end of the rope to lower it down into the well to get water. So what do you do? You use a woman's girdle. I I know this sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, though they had created a religious system of rules and regulations that were so severe and asinine that people were, I mean, they had, they had absolutely programmed God right out of the church. It was so um, heavy that what people were under uh, was so severe. It's where actually Jesus says in uh, Mark 2, 27 and 28, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. 
Okay, so what these scribes and Pharisees have done is they have created so many rules that there's not one person who can even keep them. And everyone is sort of slowly backing out the door of Judaism because they're going, this is craziness. That's the, that's the setting that is happening here. So you have of Nicodemus, who is part of the Jewish ruling council. Does he keep the rules? You better believe it. You better believe it. Like to the T. He keeps the rules. And I would actually propose to you that this guy keeps the rules out of a right heart, and yet right hearts, when you do it in your flesh over a long period of time, can become the wrong thing. We should always, as people, stop and go, Lord, sift my heart on this. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I do it before I get on this platform every week. Oh, Lord, sift my heart. Okay. Verse 3, Jesus replies. So Nicodemus comes, they're standing up on the roof, wind's blowing through this setting, and now they're talking. Jesus replies, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Verse 4, how can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. All right, let's pause here a minute. The idea of being born again. So you have to fully get inside like um, Nicodemus's mind. And his mind is like a, I mean, this guy would have been like a, as sharp as a steel trap. He would have had the entirety or if not all of the Old Testament fully memorized. So when Jesus is talking to him, he's actually using lots of Old Testament scriptures and references because he's calling upon what Nicodemus already knows in order to call him into the newness of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So he's digging deep on what what is sort of in this guy, and there is in the Old Testament the implicit um, new birth. And so this is not necessarily a full new idea for Nicodemus. Uh, take um, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where they're both writing, and they're talking about, take this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Okay, so that's a new birth. That's a transition inside of a person. Um, you could also take David, I think in Psalms 51, create in me a new heart, O God, or a clean heart, O God. So this idea, um, both in Greek culture at this time and in Jewish culture at this time, is not particularly a fully new idea, although the way Jesus is saying it is new. So, Verse 4, how can anyone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, into their mother's womb to be born. I don't think for a minute that Nicodemus is this um, obtuse. Okay? He's, uh, he's actually saying, I think if you dig deeper into the text and into what he's saying, he's actually saying, um, I recognize the need to be born anew. My question is the possibility of it. In other words, I don't believe it's possible. I've spent my entire life like being religious and trying to follow all of these silly rules and trying to keep this Old Testament law. And what I continue to find inside myself is my heart is ugly. And he's actually saying not that, uh, that God can't um, make someone, he's, he's not saying, uh, you can't, am I going to crawl into my mother's body? I mean, it sounds crazy. But what he's saying is, um, God, I don't believe that this is possible to be made new because I'm the best of the best. I'm the very top of the religious establishment. If anyone in the whole country is doing it right, it's me. And I'm obviously failing and missing the mark horribly. I don't believe this is possible. 
That's what he's saying. He's arguing with Jesus. He's saying, you're wrong. Now, one of the things that I love um, about Jesus is he, and, and you're going to see it this week, and we'll see it next week when we deal with the woman at the well, but I like to think of Jesus as having a big um, oval mirror, okay? Um, so, so picture me holding a big oval mirror, and if you've heard me teach on any of the parables, I've done the same thing. But if Jesus is holding a mirror, and he goes, and he's talking to Shannon, at, when, he, when he begins the conversation, he's holding the mirror kind of at an angle like this, so that Shannon can see into the mirror and see... God always starts there. The love of God, the graciousness of God, um, always starts by, by, by pointing the person um, to heaven and even possibly breaking some of the bondages of their own thinking, challenging the way they've seen God in the past, and inviting them into a new relationship with God. But at some point in the conversation as they're talking, he actually takes that mirror and he shifts it just like that, and now what's Shannon see? Herself. In order for a person to fully um, make their way into deep and significant and authentic relationship with Jesus, they have to first see God, and then they have to see themselves. And so people tend to think, well, the Old Testament is all judgment, and the New Testament is all grace. I would say, no, it's, it's, it's both, because what Jesus is actually doing in this moment is, as he, he is, um, you could even say he, when he tilts that mirror and he shows the person themselves, that is the discipline of God. That is even, if you use an Old Testament word, the wrath of God. You are, you are feeling the entire full weight of, oh my goodness, what am I? And then, your position to go, Lord Jesus, would you come in and save me and rescue me and change me, this old, broken, ugly heart, and would you make it new? That's the gospel. So there's this, there's this moment here where Nicodemus is actually arguing with the Lord because he has all of this Old Testament memorized. He knows exactly what's going on. A new birth is not a new idea to him. He's just saying, nah, it's impossible. And if I don't have it, ain't nobody getting it because I obey all these stupid rules. That's what's happening. I tie the knot and use the woman's girdle to get... I mean, really, that's, what, that's what's going on behind the scenes inside this guy, in my opinion. Okay, uh, verse 5. So Jesus answers him. Now remember, Jesus answers uh, people um, not just what their words or what they're saying, but he's going to dig deeper and answer what they need. So sometimes you read Jesus, and, and we don't ever want to acknowledge this, but it's like, what? How does this even fit? He's just off the wall. Jesus is not reading just your words or just your body language. He's reading all of you, and he's going to respond to lead you to life. Okay? So let's go. So Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And uh, one of the things that when you're reading the New Testament that you have to do is flesh in Greek is sarks. And sarks can either be like physical flesh, like, you know, my body, um, or it can be, Paul uses it, flesh, the sin principle that lives inside of you. So how many of y'all know that you're not your sin? Y'all say that. I am not my sin. One, two, three. So what, what, what Paul and his theology unfurls from Christ, it comes clearly from Christ, but what Paul unfurls is that this flesh or sin principle lives inside of us, but it is not us. So you can, that doesn't let you off the hook, because if you did it, you're responsible for it. 
own it. But what you can begin to do is go, okay, this is not me, right? So um, I didn't intend to get off too much into this, but let me dip into it just a second as we weave our tapestry. I, I tell you a lot that I do morning declarations. I declare things over myself in life about who I am and who I'm not. So when I get into a situation that I'm tempted to do something I'm not, I don't just say, I don't do that. I go, I am not that, or I am no longer that. You see what I'm saying? So, so there's, this, um, th- there's this, like, I don't know, this identity that is actually uh, beginning to happen inside a person, um, and, and Jesus is even leading, leading Nicodemus kind of to that point. Okay, let's go back. Verse 5, Jesus answered, very, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but this, and this is flesh being body right here. That's what Jesus is saying. But the Spirit, and that's capital S, Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Okay. What Jesus is calling upon in Nicodemus is, we won't go all the way back to it, but if you go all the way back to Genesis and you walk through the Old Testament, there is this... um, there is the, uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, okay? It's, this, it's all through the Old Testament. That one of the words that is consistently used is ruach. It's the breath of God. It's the Spirit of God. So what, what Jesus is calling upon in Nicodemus here is this revelation that you shouldn't be surprised, that you must be born again. The Spirit of God must come wholly overshadow you, must, must um, dwell over you, must born or, or birth you anew. And then he switches, and he actually goes, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Now, where are they standing? Up on the rooftop. Okay, what's blowing through their hair? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, again, what Jesus is actualizing here in, in, in Nicodemus is like the, his heart of hearts is he would have even studied and known um, the Old Testament name of God. What's the Old Testament name of God? Yahweh. We translate it Jehovah in, in English, but it's Yahweh. And technically speaking, if you look at how they spelled Yahweh, they actually pulled the vowels out of it. We spell it Y-A-W-E-H, I think. But uh, the ancient Israelites would have technically pulled the vowels out of it and it would have been three continents. Y-W-H. And it's more of a sound. It's more Yahweh. Yahweh. The breath of God. So when a newborn baby comes out, look at that little baby on the back. What's the first thing that happens? Ah, Yahweh. Ah, And the cry comes out the way God created us and designed us and what Nicodemus even knows in this moment is you may not believe in God. You may be an atheist. You may be a doubter. You may hate the church. You may be hurt, but you may be whatever. But with every breath you take in, Yahweh, out. So what Jesus is calling upon in Nicodemus is this revelation that the breath of God enters in, and as it enters in, it makes you new if you let it. So he's calling Nicodemus into this sort of surrendered position. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't shame Nicodemus for coming at night. Could he have said, could he have slammed the door on him? 
might you or me have slammed the door on Nicodemus? You big coward. Why didn't you come when I was wrecking the temple? You waited? Come on, go there a second. We love to be right. I love to be right. I'd have been tempted to slam that door in Nicodemus's face and say, beat it, sucker. Come talk to me when everybody's watching. I want to be vindicated. No, 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 not Jesus. Welcomes him in. Not only does he welcome him in, steps to a private place to have this conversation. And then Jesus begins to lead Nicodemus to life and the breath of God. Verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Argumentative. That's what's happening here. Nicodemus is going, no way. I've spent my whole life doing this, and I've never seen anybody truly born again. I've never seen anybody changed, is what he's saying. I've never seen anybody deeply and radically actually transformed. It's just a bunch of people following a bunch of rules, and we're not attaining to anything. I don't believe it. That's what he's saying. I don't believe it. Now, here's, here's the moment, verse 10. Remember my mirror? Hold it up. Here's where Jesus shifts the mirror. And he holds it right up for Nicodemus. And in this moment, there's the discipline of God, the judgment of God. If you like Old Testament words, you could even use the wrath of God. And it is in this moment that drives Nicodemus to repentance. You're going to love the way this ends. I love the way this ends. I would probably think of it, um, our, our younger kids like to seesaw. You ever been on a seesaw? In the middle of a seesaw is a fulcrum point. You know what I'm saying? Everything shifts on that fulcrum point. And this is, it's that fulcrum point where Jesus lifts that mirror so that Nicodemus has to see himself fully. So here's what he said. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people, interesting he says you people. What does you people mean? Pharisees, you religious people, you people that have made so many rules, you've broken the back of my beloved people under the weight of all your rules and regulations, and you've created so much work for them that they've given up on any hope that they can be in deep and authentic relationship with Jesus, and you've driven them away from Yahweh. You people, it's a serious rebuke. Church today, Selah. Make application. You people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Who's he talking about? Himself, the Son of Man. It's fascinating to me that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man again and again and again, Son of Man. He's saying, not only am I fully God, but I'm fully human. Now, this is where it gets wild. Verse 14, total shift. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. What? We're talking on the roof, we're hanging out, the wind's blowing, Nicodemus is in a full-on fight with Jesus. Jesus just lifts up the mirror and shows Nicodemus how busted he is, even in his religious rightness, right? And then Jesus introduces, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, now who's the Son of Man? Jesus, okay, must be lifted up. What's that mean? 
cross, okay, verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is speaking of something that has happened with Moses, but has not yet happened with him or is in process of happening. And you have Nicodemus there on the roof going, and Nicodemus, his, his mind would have been sharp as a tack. He would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is talking about Numbers 21. So let's flip back to Numbers 21. If you're in a paper Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And if you're like me, use your concordance. <laughs> okay. Numbers 21, we're going to start in verse 4. Um, time reference, it's important here. This is after the Israelites uh, refused to enter the promised land. So, one sentence recap. Um, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, delivered them from bondage and slavery, led them through the wilderness. It should have been a two-week journey, ended up being... Uh, they camped at Sinai for almost a year, Mount Sinai, and they went on. They should have entered the promised land then. They uh, refused to, in disobedience and fear, they refused the good things that God had in store for them. Can you and I do the same? Selah. Okay. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 4, they've refused to enter the promised land. They're traveling onward, so they're camping. So they opted, instead of going into the promised land for a 40-year camping trip in the desert. One time when Abby and I were newly married, we got in a fuss because she wanted to glamp. That's camping, but it's, I don't know, a lot of extra nice stuff. Glamour, glamping, glamorous camping. And I'm like, I was an outdoor guide and rock guide in the back. I'm like, what? Ah, we got in this big old fuss. It was funny. Now we glamp. There is a God in heaven, and I am not him. <laughs> okay, Numbers 21, uh, starting in verse 4. They, the Israelites, so we're talking two and a half million people-ish, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient. Some, some uh, translations say they grumbled. The people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God or grumbled against God and against Moses. Do you ever grumble? At our dinner table every night, uh, we share um, uh, good things, or we share um, sunny moments and rainy moments. So um, we, we give opportunity to share a difficult thing from the day, but we really try to capitalize on the good things and even the thankfulness um, and foster that in our kids because it's easy to grumble, isn't it? And they grumbled against Moses. Can you imagine grumbling against your pastor? I can. I've done it. Okay. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. Isn't it interesting that they refused to go in the promised land, and now they're blaming God? There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That miserable food is? Manna. God is providing it. It is the bread of heaven. Now, who are we actually reading about in John? little foreshadowing, Jesus, who is the bread of life, bread of heaven. Okay, verse 6. This is crazy. I'm just not afraid of talking about crazy because it's in the Bible. 
Verse 6, then, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Those are the passages you want to just not read. Yeah. <laughs> What's the pastor going to say about that? Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, before we keep going, a couple things. This is really, really important. When you dig into the text and when you understand God from Genesis to Revelation, I would say the best way to understand the Lord sent venomous snakes is like this. There's a hedge of protection around the Israelites. It's, uh, if, you, if you look at Job, it would be a heavenly angelic hedge of protection. When we disobey God, occasionally that hedge lifts. Uh, when... Um, if you look at Simon Peter in the New Testament, Satan asks to sift us like wheat. God occasionally lifts the hedge. Now, I think it's very important because I wouldn't say for a minute that the Lord caused or created these venomous snakes, but as you look at the original language, it's that he lifted a hedge and the enemy comes in. Okay? So it's very important, and, and those of you who are Reformed, I'm Reformed in my theology, so I believe in basically the sovereignty of God, and then our free will is in the context of the sovereignty of God. But God is not authoring evil, okay? He's authoring and inviting good. And uh, someone recently called me and just said, how do I, I'm, I was, they were dealing with their students in a class, how do I deal with hell? And God, how, how does a loving God send people to hell? And I said, well, look, I'd probably understand it like this. A loving God created us with free will, okay? And he's invited us into heaven in him now and in eternity, but by his sovereign creation and choice, he has given us the freedom to reject him. So I think a better way of saying it is God allows people to choose to live without him on planet earth and in eternity. Now, is he sovereign over that? Yes. And those of you who are Reformed, if you want to have a quick conversation afterwards, I'm Reformed in my belief. But the Lord, so it says, the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people. They bit the people. Many Israelites died. All right, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Can you imagine if you came in here this morning and I had a snake on a pole? <laughs> It'd be great on Facebook or YouTube. or I mean, wouldn't that be great? Hey, Pastor Michael. Would you come back? <laughs> Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. All right, so God allows snakes to come in, and they become a source of discipline and even death for the people. The people cry out in repentance. Moses prays on behalf of the people. God, does God take the snakes away? Oh, this is so hard. He doesn't take the snakes away, but he gives people a way out. Is God going to take all the snakes out of your life? But he'll always give you a way out, a way through. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Okay, you get bitten by a snake. What do you do? Where is that thing in the camp? <laughs> ah! The pole. Look at it, and what happens? Healing. Okay. What is a relationship with Jesus? 
You get ensnared into your own mess, your own sin, your own garbage. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. What does it mean even to give your life to Jesus once? And then what does it mean to walk with him day to day? It's when you're bitten, you look to him. Now, I think one of the things that we then have to wrestle with is, is, why is it a snake on the pole? Like, okay, so who was hung on the pole in the New Testament? All right, let's, let's go there. I didn't even tell you we were going to go here. Let me see if I can find it. Deuteronomy 21, if you want to make a note, verses 22 and 23. I'm reading out of the NIV. If anyone is guilty of a capital offense, if anyone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Who hung on a pole for you and me? Jesus. Okay. Now, all of this is like crunching through Nicodemus's mind as Jesus is talking to him. So what Jesus is doing is he's actually reaching into all of Nicodemus's experience and education and everything he's seen, and he's saying, come with me to life. So you go back then to this, and Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And then one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, here it is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, which is that whoever believes in him, Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. Actually, not just in eternity, but right now. now. That's exactly right. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. All right, now let's, let's roll back uh, and look at John 3.16. Um, more sequentially, because I think this is so powerful. We could probably park there for so long. Um, You have the greatest motive ever. For God, what the world? So love the world. The greatest motive. There it is. Why does God do everything that he has done? Because of his great love. You have the greatest gift. What's the greatest gift? His son. He gave his son. That's the story of Abraham in the Old Testament with Isaac. It foreshadowed Christ. That whoever believes shall not perish. You have the greatest danger. What's the greatest danger? Perish. Separation from God. And then you have um, the, the widest, greatest welcome. Who's welcome? That whoever believes. Who's welcome? the arrogant religious man named Nicodemus, the broken woman at the well who's of a different racial background, the one who's rich, the one who's poor, the one who's stuck, the one who's stuck in sin, the one who's hiding their sin. Everyone is welcome. Whoever believes, it is absolutely the widest. It's why I'm convinced that Jesus was crucified with arms spread wide. Everyone is welcome. Every person is welcome to find grace and life here. And then it's the longest life. How long is it? My brain can't even grasp it. Forever. All right, now, let's flip to John 19. And then we're going to come back and end back in John 3.
John 19, I'm going to start reading in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate was the guy who ordered Jesus' crucifixion. He was Roman. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Sounds like us, doesn't it? I'm a disciple, but... With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Verse 39. He was accompanied by... I love the way Jesus works. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That says that Nicodemus is a very wealthy man. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I wish I could take us this morning and stand on the old Jerusalem walls, because you can stand on the old Jerusalem wall and you can look at the hill that was almost certainly Golgotha, and there's earlier photos of it. That, that Golgotha means place of the skull, and there's photos of it where you can actually see the face of a skull in the hill. And at the base of the hill is a garden, and in the garden is a tomb. And guess what? The tomb's empty. And I can't prove that that is the tomb and that was the place, but you can also stand on that old city wall and you can look over to your right and you can see the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see a little back behind you the temple. And all of a sudden you get this idea of what Jesus passed through to invite us into freedom. The snake was hung on a pole because ultimately the snake, Satan, is going to be hung on a pole. Jesus is no longer on the cross. He exited the cross. He entered the tomb. And the man who came under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus, was the man who carried his body. Can you imagine how Nicodemus felt when he carried the lifeless body of Jesus and laid him in the tomb, reflecting on that night when the wind blew through their hair on the top of this little house in the middle of Jerusalem, and Jesus invited him into life. See, the life that Jesus is inviting every single one of us into, it doesn't mean you're going to get it right. I, I actually think Nicodemus hardened his heart at this point, and he didn't change. And yet the life of the gospel working in Nicodemus draws him slowly but surely to King Jesus until he sees this man crucified. And he's thinking back in his mind going, oh my goodness, he told me that just like the snake was hung on the pole, he's going to be hung on the pole and he's going to be crucified. And all of a sudden, all revelation comes into Nicodemus and he goes, oh my goodness, this is God. And freedom finds Nicodemus. I can't imagine carrying that body. I'm back in John 3, verse 19. 
This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light. Now, Jesus is talking to a man who doesn't do anything wrong, right? Make application there. The wrong is where? We have this like hierarchy of sin thing that we do in America, especially in the church. We love, we like make this like this ledger of sin and we go, well, this is really serious. And, you know, and then we go all the way down to stuff that's not so serious. I I actually think if you could uh, see with the eyes of heaven, that whole sin hierarchy would be inverted. I think the the most serious sin is always sins of the heart, and it manifests in a hundred different ways. But what God is looking for is hearts who are willing to come to him, whether it's on a stage in front of everybody or in the secret of night, and go, Lord Jesus, I am tired of doing this my own way. I am tired of like performing. I am tired of trying to make myself right. I want you to come in and you to fill me and you to change me and you to make me new because I don't like the person that I am, whether you've got an ugly, horrible testimony or whether you've never done a thing wrong and you're like Nicodemus, this is the God who will come in and rescue and save and redeem and restore and heal and make you new, radically, totally new. This is the God of heaven come to earth who died on a cross for you and me, who was lifted up on a pole. And all we have to do is shift our gaze from our grumbling and our frustration onto, and you will be saved. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was four years old, grew up in a Christian home. And, but from 19 to 27, I just got hijacked and made all manner of terrible decisions. And, and Abby and I are still living in, through, and out some of the repercussions of my sin. God has restored. He has redeemed. He has healed. He is healing. And yet some of the scars remain. And I'll never forget, it was May 3rd, 2008. I was actually homeless. Michael, that's not very long ago. That's true. I'd come to this point where I was so broken, and I just went, Lord, you have got to help me. I'm done. And I looked up, and the redemption journey started. It's been difficult at points. It's been painful at points. It's been difficult, disappointing at points. But the grace of God has so permeated. And there's days, even today, even this past week, where I step back and look at our youngest kids, I look at Abby, and I'll just stand there and go, oh my goodness, the grace and the redemption of God in my life is amazing. I sat with a friend in my kitchen this week. And we sat at the bar stools. And he said, I remember... When I was young, because he grew up in the church, like I grew up in the church, he said, I remember when I was young and I wished I had a testimony. He's got one now. (laughs) And I said, man, I remember doing the same thing. And I wish I could go back and tell the younger Michael. (laughs) But listen to me, church. If you're a person like Nicodemus and you've always done it right, 
He wants to reach in and grab you out and save you and change you and make you radically fully new on the inside. And we're going to look next week at the woman at the well. And if you're a person with a testimony, he wants to grab you and draw you out and make you radically and fully new. I love the way this passage ends. Verse 20, all those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I had an old friend that used to say, your secrets make you sick. I agree. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Those last few verses indicate to me that the Lord, a lot of people ask, what, what about people who haven't heard of Jesus? These verses indicate to me that the creation testifies about who God is. And anyone, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus, can intrinsically, based on the creation, look to and find the Creator. And I think we'll be surprised who finds their way into heaven. The people I am worried about are not the ones who have never heard the name of Jesus. The people that I'm worried about are those of us who have heard the name of Jesus. Let me say it like this. There's an old story I read of a beautiful, beautiful art museum full of the most priceless masterpieces. It was said that the masterpieces possessed eternal beauty and unquestioned genius, all the greats. And there was an attendant who was walking around the museum showing a, a man around and at the end of the tour, the man said, well, I don't think much of your old pictures. And as the story goes, the attendant almost whispered back to him, sir, I would remind you that these pictures are no longer on trial, but rather the one who looks at them. Your reaction to Jesus reveals your heart. And the heart of a person at some point who does not respond to the cross of Christ Jesus is hanging on to something or some things that they love more than him. You may not even be fully aware of it. This is the Jesus that stands on the roof with the wind blowing through his hair, beckoning that you come and experience the words of life. Worship team, would you come? I'm going to say a prayer for us. Let's just close our eyes. Maybe even bow your head for a minute. Father, would you allow us to be a church and a body that shifts our gaze off of our own grumbling onto you? Lord, would you allow us to be a church that recognizes we've all been part of those religious people 
And Father, would you allow us to be a church that comes to you to find life and life abundant? And Father, would you make of us a church and a group of people who have tasted and drunk so deeply of your Spirit that those rivers of living water that you talk about come rising up and flow out us, uh, of us and through us because that you have made us radically and fully new. Father, I pray that across this room, I pray that people watching online, Lord, I pray that in that secret place, the darkness of the roof where you talked to Nicodemus, that you would meet with us and that people would make those decisions to surrender their hearts to you, to surrender those hidden places to you, to surrender those secrets to you, to surrender the things that they've been holding on to you, and that you would come in and make us radically new. Father, I pray for a church, not just Saltbox, but the church, that you would rise up the church, the body of Christ, the capital C church, and you would renew a group of people whose gaze is not on themselves, but is rather on you. And Father, I pray like those Israelites who are stuck in the desert, that we as your people would get our eyes off of the terrible, difficult, even painful bites around us, and we would shift our gaze onto you, and you would come and radically transform us. Father, would you minister in this house, people online, wherever they're watching, Lord, would you touch hearts, and would you transform us? prayer team, would you come? Would you make yourself available up front, maybe at some of the back doors? If you're online and you want to get in touch with one of us, then make a comment in the comments and we'll see if we can't circle back to you. If you're in the room or if you're online and you've never given your heart to King Jesus, I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm going to make you get out of your seat and come talk to me. This is the God that will make you radically new no matter where you are. He's so good. Let's stand together and worship. If you need special prayer, come up and grab one of these people. They're trusted. We love them. We'll close with this song, and then Laura, if you'll close us.